Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text for this morning's message is on the back of the notes outline bulletin. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, we confess that our hearts do wander and that we need to come back and center ourselves on you, that we need to center ourselves in dependence on your word. There are so many distractions in this life. There are so many secondary things that it's so easy to lose track of the best and greatest thing. So Lord, now in this time, we pray that you would unify our hearts, unite them to fear your name, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would give the increase, that you would remove the veil so that we could see glory, especially as we look to your saving work that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been working our way through this study of Paul's letter to Titus, we've covered two-thirds of the book already, first two chapters, and we're going to make it a good ways through chapter three today, God willing. But as usual, I just want to remember where we've come from, to situate the text within its greater context. If you remember, Paul has, has a band of church-planting missionaries who travel with him, and they apparently went through Crete planting churches, and Paul left Titus behind, and he went on to Macedonia, and he plans, we'll see at the end of chapter 3, to meet up with him at Decapolis. And what Paul did was he left one of his strategic teammates behind because of the importance of taking this fledgling church, and much like a wet nurse will sometimes be entrusted with a newborn babe to strengthen it up, that's what Titus is doing here, this, this newly birthed church of believers in a pagan culture, in a godless culture, needed stabilization. The way Paul literally puts it in verse 5 says, this is why I left you in Crete, chapter 1, so that you might put what remained in order, literally that you might deal with what is lacking. And we saw the first thing that was needed was leadership, elders, and the reason for that is spelled out in the rest of chapter 1, because of the false teachers in Crete, because of the um, deceptive teachings, rebellious people. There needed to be strong leadership. But then, for all of chapter 2, Paul then moves on to the second item that this fledgling church needed, and that was instruction in what you can almost call household conduct. And so he goes class by class, case by case, through the various relationships in the body. He deals with older men. He deals with older women and younger women and younger men and slaves. And all of that we saw last week is rooted in the gospel. This isn't moralism. This isn't just a bunch of rules. But last week we saw this is really about the school of the gospel. This is about being trained by grace. That's the phrase that Paul uses in 2.11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. So Paul doesn't just want right living, but he wants right living rooted and growing out of right believing. He wants gospel living. And we don't want to separate the root from the fruit, else both die. And now as we turn to chapter 3, after closing out chapter 2 with another exhortation to teach, we're right back again to teaching. Literally, the first word in the ESV of chapter 3 is remind them. 
We're back to teaching. At the end of our text, in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. We're back to teaching. Again, Titus' primary work, appointing elders and teaching, instruction. And whereas in the last few weeks, we've seen case-by-case, really inter-body relationships, this week... We're going to look at the Christian's relationship to the world, the Christian's relationship to the community, or, as the title of our message for this morning is, Gospel-Empowered Civic Living. Gospel-Empowered Civic Living. And Paul wants Titus to remind the Christian believers, and therefore I think he wants us to be reminded, of four things. We're going to look at four important truths to remember Um, You can see them right there in your outline. Remember your civic duty. Remember your former condition. Remember your salvation. And then on the backside of the insert, remember to remember. And that's what we're going to try to work our way through. These eight verses. It's a big text, but it's really one big complete thought. Not only is it bookended by the instructions to teach, but it's also bookended by this concept of good works. Look at 3.1. Remind them, he says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Down in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So this is a, this is a unit. And we're to try to, God willing, make our way through this in the next 40 minutes or so. So let's dive right in. Let's read our passage and dive right into our first point. So Titus 3, 1 to 8. Reminds them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we're looking at this in four points, four rememberings, but another way to look at it, just sort of track the argument, is there's our duty in the first two verses, and really, verses three to seven is motivation, is argumentation, is reason why we should do verses one to two. And once again, Paul goes to the gospel. He doesn't just go to, well, it's the right thing to do. He goes to the gospel, and we're going to see the Trinitarian working of God in saving us. And then finally, the sort of the reminder, yeah, teach these things and speak about them confidently. So that's sort of the flow. There's our duty, there's the motivation, and then there's a reminder for Titus to teach the duty. So let's dive right in. Our first important truth, to remember your civic duty. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
And this section breaks down into really two classes of people to whom he's speaking about us relating to. The first, to the government. That's your blank there. The first is to the government. He defines it as rulers and authorities. And by those two terms, he's really referring to anyone who holds political power, anyone who holds governmental power. Rulers and authorities, plural. Not just one top dog, but every link in that chain. This would certainly include President Obama. This would include congressmen, senators. Anyone who's in any position of authority in our country. This would probably go all the way down to police officers, mayors. This is... Rulers and authorities is a broad category. That's to whom we're now considering our interaction. Um, the, the scripture has a lot to say about this. In Romans 13, we've seen that about God's instruction to us about the government, 1 Peter 2. And here, Paul must have us to remind us of these things. He wants us to remind us of our duty to the government, which suggests that we should already know this. And I suspect that what I'm about to say in the next few minutes is nothing new. It may not be pleasant to hear. It may not be fun. It may be difficult. I doubt it is new. Remind them that towards the government, they are to submit obediently. Submit obediently. That's, that's what he says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, where we looked at Paul's instruction to slaves in chapter 2, verse 9, that was their fundamental responsibility, to be submissive to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing. And so if you ask yourself, what does it mean to submit? I'm going to suggest to you it means the exact same thing it meant there, to willingly place yourself in a position underneath, of authority underneath someone else's authority, to not kick against it inwardly. Submission is different from obedience. Obedience refers to the action. They said to jump, you jumped. They said turn left, you turned left. Submission is the inward attitude. And this is, I think, probably the harder part for us. And I'm guessing not many of us are engaged in overt acts of disobedience and rebellion. But it's far more likely that inwardly we resent the government. Inwardly we kick against their authority. We are in a country, after all, founded upon revolution. It's part of the American spirit. And so this is a challenge for us to... to Except that God has placed us under governmental authorities. And he wants us to accept that. He doesn't want us to resist that. He doesn't want us to fundamentally reject that. Now, we'll get to in a few minutes. We live in a country where you can speak in appropriate ways against policies. You can raise support against policies. That's good. This is a separate thing. The question being asked here is, are you content? Are you at peace? Are you willing in your heart and your will to be under the authority of the government? Or do you resent that? Do you kick against that? Do you sort of feel, I'm going to give them as little as I have to and not an inch more? Because that's, that's not submission. And submission is separate from obedience. Obedience is the doing. It's the doing. And, and I want to stress this point, especially to men here. Because back in chapter 2, wives were told to submit to their husbands. Slaves were told to submit to their masters. Elsewhere, children are told to submit. Here, men, is what we are to submit to. And as we are leaders in our home, I would suggest to you that our wives and our children take their point and observe what it means to submit by watching us as we submit to the authorities in our lives. And I'd further suggest that we have no business calling our wives and children to standards 
that we ourselves are unwilling to keep in the authorities that God has placed in our life. It's convicting. I, I know. It's convicting. And that doesn't mean we need to support every policy that we disagree with. It doesn't mean that we need to be pleased with every action the government makes, but it does mean that inwardly we accept as a good thing from God, we are willing to not resist the fact that we are under the government's authority. And where the government is not calling us to sin, we are going to be obedient. We are going to be obedient. Certainly, we do not obey if the government calls us to sin. No more than the the apostles were to not preach Christ when they are forbidden from preaching Christ. But other than that caveat, other than when obedience to a lesser authority would cause us to sin, we are to obey, to submit. That's what we're called to do. Beyond that, we are to serve eagerly. Notice that, being ready for every good work. This is sort of similar to the instruction to slaves. Slaves in 2.9 are told to be submissive to their own masters and everything, that they may be well-pleasing well-pleasing. And here, the corollary, not only do we submit and to obey, we are looking for every opportunity to do good. There'll be government programs, there'll be opportunities in the community to do good, and where what the government is doing is good, we want to join in. Where what the government is doing, God says is good, we want to applaud, we want to approve, we want to participate in. We want opportunities to be good citizens. Now, I'm well aware that there are many programs that I would have a difficult time joining in as a good thing, but they're, they're still there. We're looking for opportunities not just to, to obey, but to be good citizens. We want our government to be pleased with us as much as we can. It's been said, it should be said, that Christians make the best citizens. That should be true of us. That should be true of us. We're to serve eagerly, looking for opportunities for good works. And I know that can be challenging because we live in a sinful world with a sinful government, and we'll get to that in verse 3. But for now, our marching orders, what we need to be reminded of, and again, that's suggestive. Reminders suggest two things. We already know this perfectly well, and two, it ain't easy. This is probably one of the first areas that's going to slip for us. That's why I need a reminder. No one needs to remind me to have dessert. No one needs to remind me to get my paycheck. Generally, I need reminders for things I'm not as eager to do. So reminding us tells us we already know this. This is no new teaching. And secondly, it's probably going to be hard. It's probably not going to be easy. We're probably not going to get excited about this. And so if you find this difficult, if you find what I've just said challenging, you're in good company. Paul expects as much. And he brings out the big guns of the gospel to help motivate us, to help us do this, not out of some legalism, not out of some gritting your teeth, but seeing how the gospel flows into this. Point B, not only our civic duty to the government, but to all men. You see that at the end of verse 2, showing courtesy towards all people. We're to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And so here... There's the put off and the put on. We are not to, he says, speak evil. And literally the word for avoid quarreling is not quarreling. We're to put those off. We're to put off quarreling and fighting. We're to put on meekness and humility. The word can also be translated slander or evil speaking. That word for quarreling and fighting. And what he's done here is he's broadened his view. The government is still in view, but now it's just brought into everyone, to your unbelieving neighbor, 
to the community, to the city of Des Moines or Norwalk or Martinsdale or wherever you happen to live. And so it's, it's tempting when you live in a sinful world. It's tempting when evil is being done. It's tempting, especially when evil is being applauded, for us to grumble, to complain, to, to push back. And it's forbidden. It's, it's, we should not do this about the government. We shouldn't do this about our neighbor. We shouldn't do this about our community. Now, there is place to speak out against evil. Remember, after all, turn back in Titus chapter 1. Paul is simultaneously able to critique and even condemn the Cretan culture, and yet say, be submissive, be obedient, do good, don't speak evil. So these are not mutually exclusive concepts. By saying that we are not to slander or speak evil of our government or our neighbors does not mean there's no legitimate room to respectfully and appropriately speak out against evil. In chapter 1, verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their old own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So there's Paul speaking, critiquing, evaluating the pagan culture in which he lives in. So this is not forbidding us from looking at the culture around us, looking at our government, and respectfully and appropriately saying, that doesn't line up with what God says. That is not good. What is being forbidden here is that slanderous, sarcastic, biting, disrespectful speech of our government or community. You know, those, those little memes that go around on Facebook. That's what we're not to be doing. To the degree that we find ourselves in our community and our government resisting evil, we find ourselves in the position much like a child or a wife who's having to disagree with their authority, with their husband, with their father, Yes, children will be set against their parents because of the gospel, but they should do it appropriately, respectfully. We may find ourselves at odds with our government. We may find ourselves at odds with our community and its values. And there will be places to speak. There will be places to act. There will be places to vote. But we should always do it respectfully. We should always do it sadly, as it were, not delighting in our disagreement. We're to put off quarreling and fighting. And rather, we are to show meekness and humility to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That phrase, perfect courtesy, is kind of a tricky one. In different translations here will translate it different ways, and it's kind of this concept of courteous, humility, friendship. It's kind of the way you act that when you are not focused on yourself but focused on someone else. You're humble, and because of that, it, it brings with this notion of courtesy, humility. We're not focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on blessing others. This is our attitude towards other people. And notice, it's all courtesy or all humility. What that means is in every possible way that we can show courtesy, that we can show humility, that we can show a focus on others to our neighbor and our community, we are to do it. Not some, but every. This gets back to looking for every good work. We're looking for opportunities to bless those around us. We're looking for opportunities to show courtesy and respect where we can. Certainly, we cannot approve evil. We cannot join in in celebrating wickedness. But where we can, we're doing this. That, this, is our, this is a very different hard attitude from what we could be having, of a sort of grumbling, complaining, why do I have to live in this godless society? Rather, we're looking for the good. We're looking to show honor. We're looking to be kind, to be gentle, to be courteous. 
This is, this is how we should be behaving towards the world and towards the government. And it's hard, which is why the, the next four or five verses are supplied as reasons for this. If what I've just said sounds challenging and difficult, and it is, and I find it challenging and difficult, but please don't see me as standing up here as the one who has arrived doing this perfectly, and if, if you all could just sort of catch up with me, that would be nice. No, I am in among with you. I see things on the TV. I read things in the newspaper that I, I find my, myself stretched, challenged. I find myself wanting to cheer along with those who mock and cajole and yet, I read a passage like this, and I get convicted. And I think of Jesus in his mock trial before the authorities in his day, and how he was silent, and how he did not revile when reviled. He did not utter curses when he was cursed, but he blessed. So that's our duty. That's the first thing we've got to remember. We've got to remember what it is we're to do in our relationship to outsiders. It's short, it's simple, it's hard. Two verses. The good news is the rest of this passage is meant to help us see how this comes out of the gospel, to, to link this, as it were, to the power source of the gospel. Because if you try doing this on your own strength, you will fail. But if we can somehow see how this connects to the gospel, how this connects to our salvation, and then we're really hooking this up to some real power, or to use another analogy, if we can connect this to the gospel vine, gospel sap's going to go out to the branch, and we will bear the gospel fruit that is so difficult. And so, in order to move along there, we now need to remember your former condition. Remember your former condition. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And the argument that Paul's assuming is this. He, first of all, take comfort. Paul understands that, that pagan governments, and, and until Jesus returns to be king of the millennial kingdom, all governments are pagan governments. But until then, unbelieving governments are difficult to live in. Unbelieving neighbors are difficult to have. It's a challenge. And so he reminds us, we were once like that. So on the one hand, he concedes the point. This isn't easy. Your, your governmental authorities, I don't know who was in charge in Crete, but if they're like humans, they had their faults, just like ours does. And so on the one hand, he doesn't try to paint them as better than they are. On the other hand, he reminds us we are the same way. So he gives, on the one hand, sure, yeah. Do you, do you think that you're, let's go through this list. Do you think your, your government and your neighbors are foolish? Sure, so are you. Do you think that they are disobedient to God? Yep, so are you. You think they're deceived and led astray by bad ideas? Mm-hmm, so are you. And you can go through the list that way. So on the one hand, Paul, completely ready to concede that your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving government, isn't what it should be. And yet the first argument he brings in is, remember, we were the same way. That The challenge for us is to think as the Christians, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Yay, us. No, we're all the bad guys. Jesus is the good guy. And never forget that. We're all the bad guys. Jesus is the good guy. And we get tempted to start to feel self-righteous as if somehow 
The reason why we think differently is something inherent in us and not something God has done to us. What we're going to see is he brings the gospel out in 4 to 7, is everything God did, he did to us in spite of us and not because of us. If you see things differently now, if you value things differently now, if you view righteousness and sin differently now, it's not because of something inherent in you and it's not because of something inherent in me. It's because of something God did to me and to you. And the implication is he may do it to them as well. We can be grieved by sin. We can even appropriately speak out against sin. We certainly hope we vote against sin. But we need to remember, there but the grace of God go us. So let's look in. He breaks down our former condition into three points. Three points. We were deceived by sin. We were deceived by sin. And we see that in that first section. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. The notion of foolish is just not having any information. Being ignorant. That's, that's what we were like. Consequently, we didn't obey. And consequently, because we were lacking information, we were easy to lead astray. If somebody doesn't know anything, then anyone who comes along with an answer can take them where they want to go. We were all deceived by sin. And the implication is, remember that our unbelieving government officials and our unbelieving neighbors are as well. In their case, it was the same as ours prior to our salvation. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, speaking of those who perish, speaking of those who do not believe. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So why is it that unbelievers don't believe in the gospel? Why is it that people reject Jesus? It's because they're blinded. Because they're ignorant, because they're deceived. When they look at Christ and look at the gospel, they see through a veil. They don't see glory. They don't see something beautiful. They don't see the marvelous perfection of Christ. And so they reject it, not knowing what they do. But Paul goes on to speak about how this is remedied. And the remedy isn't, well, some people were just good enough, and some people were persistent enough, and some people were smart enough to rip that veil off. That's not how we got saved. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, For we proclaim ourselves, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what did he just reference? God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He referenced Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, who is God responding to? Nobody. Genesis 1, God's declaration, let there be light, was a sovereign act, not in response to anything other than God's own pleasure. God didn't turn the lights on for us because of something we did. God didn't pull the veil away because we figured something out. He did it because he loves us and did it. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But we need to remember that we were once deceived so if, if you find yourself vexed and frustrated by your neighbor, by your politician, by your president, by your congressman, if you feel like, man, they've been led astray, they've bought into some weird view, okay, so were we all once in various ways. That doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make us say, well, then that's all right then. But it does remove the self-righteousness. It does remove some of the anger, and it hopefully should make us a little more sympathetic, a little more long-suffering, 
a little more humble as we deal with them. Second, we were dominated by sin. So we were deceived by sin. Point B, we were dominated by sin. We ourselves were slaves, he says, to various passions and pleasures. Now you may think to yourself, wait a second, I wasn't a slave. Yes, you were. Yes, I was. In fact, there's nobody who's not a slave. Biblically, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God in righteousness. There are no free agents. You, you get your pick. That, in fact, is probably the, the great sad irony of, of the gospel is people reject the gospel because they don't want to submit to God. They reject Christ because they, they want their own freedom, but what they see as their freedom is really slavery. Here's, here's how it works. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. For Paul in Romans six sixteen. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? Notice again, no third option. And what happens is this. We are free from something external, but we all, as unbelievers, were slaves to our own desires and passions. And I don't know about you, but I don't get to decide my desires and passions. I tried explaining this you know, before to the youth. I, I didn't pick what foods I liked. I didn't get to pick what type of music pleases me. My heart has these desires. It has these things it wants, and I can feed them and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, my heart just cries out at times for evil, and we're slaves to that. I remember as an unbeliever, I used to smoke and, and drink, and every time my heart would say, have a cigarette or have a beer, I'd hop to, and if I was able to, I'd obey because I was a slave. Not a slave to some external master, but a slave to my own sinful desires. I wasn't free to do what I wanted. I wasn't free to resist. I was a slave of my passions and my desires. And God freed us. And we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. God freed us. But remember, again, your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving um, official is a slave. He's, he's ignorant and deceived, and he's dominated by sin, just like we were. And third... We were devoted to sin, deceived, dominated, and devoted to sin. And what I mean by that is this, not only because we were slaves to sin, and because we knew no better, and because we were ignorant and deceived, we gave ourselves fully to it. He says, we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now you might again pause and say, wait a second, I wasn't hating others, and I certainly wasn't hated by others because I was popular, and I was the class president, and I was the quarterback on the football team. Well, I think oftentimes we think of hatred in a sort of unbiblical sense. Hatred is not fundamentally, I want you to die. I want bad things to happen to you. That's, that's more of a heart of murder. Hatred, biblically, is I don't care. I don't care about you. Hatred is seeing the, the, the man beaten on the side of the road and the, the Levite just walking by maybe even offering a prayer. Lord, I hope that he finds some help. That's hatred. Hatred is not love. Hatred is not love. First John 4.20 makes that clear. If anyone says he loves his brother um, who he has seen, but now if anyone says he loves God, who, oh, wow, I'm not quoting that. That just dropped out of my head. That is not okay. First John 4.20, the Lord humbles all of us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has 
seen cannot love God who has not seen. And in that verse, hate and not love are equated as the same thing. If anyone says he loves God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For how can he love God who has not seen if he does not love his brother who he has seen? And he equates hatred with not love. So by that definition, we were all walking around self-important, starring in our own video, concerned about ourselves and what pleased us, and in that way, we we're hating other people. And guess what? Everyone else was doing it right back at us. So yes, we were, we were living lives devoted to sin, devoted to ourselves. That was what defined us. And I'll sum this up again. We were ignorant. We were deceived. We were led astray. We were slaves to sin. And we spent all of our days acting that out, bearing that fruit. And then we get one of these wonderful, wonderful biblical buts where Paul will say, this is the way it was, but God. Or in this case, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. But before we turn to our, our third point, I just want to make one other point here. Notice that all this is past tense. This is who we were, but by implication of saying this is who we were, what is Paul saying about us now? It's not who we are now. Isn't that good news? So even in this description of our former state, there is hope. Because by saying, remember, we once were, and Paul lumps himself in that group, there's hope. Because what he's saying to the Cretans is it's not who you are now. And so if, if you're here today and you, that describes you, if you are here today a slave to sin, you, you can't stop doing what you want to stop doing. If you're lost, if your life is devoted to serving yourself, your own desires. I want you to pay attention to what comes next because here's the cure. How did that change occur? How did we go from once being like that, being like everybody else, to who we are now? And we're going to see we've got to remember our salvation. That, that's, that's the answer. The answer wasn't we, we grit our teeth and you know, just did it. No, God did something to us. And as we look at remembering our salvation, what you're going to see is every member of the Trinity was involved in saving us. Saving us. God is passionate about saving you and me. He is passionate about his people. Every member of the Trinity is at work in bringing us to God. And we're really not even in the picture actively here. It's all done to us. Lest, again, we think, well, you know, sure, we're better than the government. Sure, we're better than the politicians. No, God did something to us. Remember your salvation. Let's see this. When the, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And, and this section is actually a Christian hymn. It's one of the trustworthy sayings that show up in the pastoral epistles. You see, verse 8 begins with, this saying is trustworthy. And as best as we can tell, these are early doctrinal statements of the church. Many of them rhyme and have meter. So this is a Christian truism. This is a gospel hymn or song. 
I wish we could spend some time to talk about the importance of learning doctrine, putting it to music and remembering it and singing it. This is a good way, by the way, to remind people to put doctrine in our singing. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes we sing songs that have more than one verse. Some of our songs have a lot of lyrics. We're following a biblical pattern of putting rich, deep gospel theology in memorable, pithy ways and frequently putting it to music. Verses 4 to 7 is a Christian hymn, Christian statement of faith, Christian doctrine, something to be memorized, something to be learned. And we're to dive in as it talks about the Trinity at work saving us. Remember your salvation. Salvation planned in the Father's love. Salvation planned in the Father's love. Now, as we read through this, when I first read this, I was asking the question, okay, who is God our Savior? And my initial reaction was to think he's talking about Jesus. I mean, after all, back in chapter 2, it is Jesus who is called God and Savior Jesus Christ. 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. However, if you keep reading in this hymn, it's actually God the Father. Really, God the Father is our Savior, and Jesus is our Savior, and the Holy Spirit's our Savior, meaning different things by Savior. But here is clearly the Father. Watch, because you'll see the other members of the Trinity show up. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercies. This is the same person we're talking about that I'm arguing is God the Father. By the washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit... So this person saved us by the washing of the Holy Spirit. So this person is not the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. And here he's seen separately from Jesus. So now we know who we're talking about. We're talking about God the Father. This is God the Father's plan. It's said that he saved us, and yet we're seeing it's really the other two members of the Trinity who are doing stuff, which is why I titled this Salvation Planned in the Father's Love. And it's, each one of the members of the Trinity has a, has, a, has a coordinating word that helps us understand this. Here it's according to. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So get this. God saved us in the right time. He sent his son. His loving kindness and goodness appeared. It appeared 2,000 years ago, and for me, it appeared about 13 years ago in the summer of 1999 when the goodness and loving kindness of God, my Savior, appeared, bringing me to salvation. That's what we're talking about. God the Father saving. God the Father redeeming. His loving kindness here is, is the Greek word philanthropy, a lover of men. God is a lover of mankind. I just think that's really cool. Philoanthropos, philanthropy. When God's loving kindness towards men appeared and his goodness, he saved us. And then we're told why he didn't save us. I was stressing this point earlier back in, in the first three verses. It's crystal clear here. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not because we're better than them. It's not because we're smarter than them. It's not because we've done something they didn't do. Why did he save us? According to his own mercy. His own reasons. God's salvation is not arbitrary. 
Simply put, the Bible has not declared to us why he chose us and not others. We just know he did it because he did it. He did it because he loves us. I love this. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says this. This is just one of my favorite passages. Trying to explain to Israel why God chose them. Trying to prevent them from getting the big head and thinking, well, we must be something special. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So then why, why did God do it then? But it is because the Lord loves you. You get that? God didn't love you because you were some special people. God didn't love you because you were great. Well, why did God love me? He loves you because he loves you. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Because if God loves me because of something I did, something in me, well, if I get worse, if I be, do something bad, maybe he'll stop loving me this way. No. He set his love on me because he set his love on me. He sets his love on us because he sets his love on us. He, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The salvation planned in the Father's love. Next, moving on, salvation applied by the Holy Spirit. Salvation applied by the Holy Spirit. The coordinating word here, by. So the salvation was according to God's mercy, but the agency, the means of applying it to us was by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is from God's perspective. God looking down to the sinless, sinful world in rebellion and in ignorance, slaves to sin, living their lives hatefully. And he sends out his spirit to wash and regenerate and to renew our minds. He did this by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation applied by the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, washing of regeneration, if you turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, this is an Old Testament image for the new covenant forgiveness. Ezekiel 36. So how did God apply salvation to us? He did it through his spirit. He did it through the washing of regeneration, which is what baptism pictures. Remember, two or three weeks ago, we talked about baptism, how baptism saves. The Spirit's baptism saves. This is what we're talking about. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Is there anything that Israel has done to warrant or provoke this? If you read all of chapter 36, you'll see this is just God's good pleasure. And the way he applies it, he sends his spirit to renew, and to regenerate, which is to give life and to cleanse and remove sin. 
It's prophesied in Ezekiel. Now turn to a familiar passage in John 3 with Nicodemus. Nick at night coming to Jesus. And Jesus referencing this passage, although Nicodemus is going to go over his head. He's not going to get it. There was a man of the Pharisees, verse 1, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now pause there. Regeneration is necessary to see spiritual truth. Oftentimes I think we think of being born again as the effect, the result of our faith. No, no, no. Having the veil removed, having your heart replaced, having ears that hear and eyes that see is the cause of us seeing the gospel for what it is and the impetus for us believing. This is the work of God done in our heart like he did in Lydia's heart. In Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things said by Paul. Jesus says, you, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus said to him, how, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. And here's the reference to Ezekiel. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's what Titus is referencing. This work, the spirit, where the blinders come off, the heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh. There's so many biblical images for this, whether it's the veil being removed or the stone heart being replaced or whether it's blind eyes seeing or deaf ears hearing or dead bones coming to life. There's all sorts of images for this. It's, it's, it's the moment when God, the Spirit, opened your eyes. It's the moment when, if you are a Christian here today, you got it. Things clicked. You understood. The gospel made sense. Jesus was beautiful. That was a work God did, not because of anything we did, not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but because of his great kindness. And not only that, but the Spirit renewals our minds and our own spirits. He says, through the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And here that renewal is that ongoing life principle. Not only does the Holy Spirit start and raise us to life and open our eyes and, and replace our hearts and cleanse us, but the Spirit has an ongoing ministry in our life of renewing us. Let's read one reference to this. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he saved us by sending the spirit to wash and regenerate us. He saved us by sending the spirit to have an ongoing ministry of renewing our minds. And all of this, point C, is remembering a salvation purchased by Jesus Christ. So it's planned by the Father, it's applied by the Spirit, and our salvation is purchased by Jesus. He richly pours out the Spirit on us through, and there's our coordinating word, Jesus. So according to God the Father's mercy, by the watching of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that's how you were saved. Every member of the Trinity at work. Now, it doesn't mention here Jesus purchasing our salvation, but he just said that a few verses earlier. Back up in verse 
14 of chapter 2, speaking of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus purchased justifying grace. Jesus' death on the cross is the reason why we can be forgiven. That word justify is legal forgiveness. If you were to stand before a court of law and charged with some crime and, and the jury found you innocent, the judge would declare you justified. It's a positive pronouncement of innocence. We see that in, uh, in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, technically, the, the, his grace in verse 7 is still referring to God the Father. But the reason why the Spirit can only be poured through Jesus is only through Jesus' death, only through his payment, only through what he purchased for us. Can God the Father justly forgive? Can God the Father justly adopt us? So even though it's still in the text an expression of God the Father's grace and mercy, the through Jesus is referencing through what he did, purchased by Jesus Christ, and ultimately with a goal of inheritance Becoming heirs. This is not just justifying grace, but this is inheritance giving grace. Look at that verse 7. So that, all this, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. See, God doesn't just leave us forgiven. He doesn't just forgive us and then sort of see you later. He adopts us into his family. And not only does he adopt us into his family, but he makes us heirs. An heir inherits everything that the, the parent or the person they're an heir of has. And Paul makes this point elsewhere in Romans 8. He says, well, that then means we're heirs of everything. All things are ours. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what God did in saving us. His son died on a cross to forgive us. His spirit went out and and gave life to the dead and brought us to faith. And this is all according to the Father's plan. And all of this meant to channel back, to fuel our willingness to submit and obey and be kind to the unbelieving world who is just like we were. If God can be so loving to us and we were just like them, why can't we be loving to them, kind to them, willing to submit where we can to them? You see how this gospel truth fuels and empowers our ability to do this? How ungrateful, how proud, how self-righteous must we be that after God did all this to us, we turn around and say, I won't put up with that. You see what a disconnect that is? You see how this gospel truth gives us the power if we remind ourselves about this? We need to remind ourselves about this, to be sure. We'll forget. I forget. And we'll start thinking we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And no, we're the bad guys. Christ is the good guy. Now, we're going to pick up actually in verse 8 next week because we're out of time, but I want to make one final point. I'm going to pick up one final point. It's not, it's not on your notes, so just look at verse 8 in the text. Now, this Christian hymn, verses 4 to 7, is an explanation of what God did in saving us. And like I said, we are passive in all of this. We get washed, and we get renewed, and we get justified, and we become heirs. Passive verb, passive verb, passive verb. Well, there is one thing in this text we do actively, and it's in verse 8. 
And I would be remiss in not pointing this out. We'll pick up verse 8 next week. This saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, do you see the one thing we did here? The one thing we did is believe. Everything else is done for us. Our salvation, planned by the Father. The Holy Spirit washing us, cleansing us, regenerating us, renewing our minds. The Son dying for us. And here is faith. And I just want to close by saying, if, if, as we were talking through verse 3, the former condition, and you're sitting here and you're thinking, actually, verse 3 kind of describes me pretty well. If you're sitting here and you're, this isn't, I've never heard any of this stuff. Well, I want to let you know what God has done for you, what God is willing to do for you. And I want to invite you to believe. I want you to invite you to trust your faith in Jesus Christ. And you can become an heir of grace and, and you can turn around and say, that's who I was, but it's not who I am anymore. That's, that's what God is calling us to do, to, to trust in Jesus Christ. And all things can be made new. And you can have the Spirit living in you and you can call God Father and you can have life eternal, that hope and the power to obey, and to serve, and to love. That's, that's, that's the only thing we're called to do, is believe. And so after highlighting all the work, all the members of the Trinity have gone to, to procure salvation, I just want to call on anyone here who has not to believe, to trust. We'll pick this up next week. Let's, we don't even have time for our final song. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for the, your gospel. And we thank you for what you did. Father, you loved us for no other reason than you just you loved us. And you planned a rescue. And your son willingly gave himself up for us, taking our sin upon him on the cross. And your spirit has gone out into the world, giving life, granting light where there's darkness. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you would bring men and women to faith here. I pray that you would give life here today, that you would remove that veil, that you would regenerate dead hearts of stone. Oh, Lord, save in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.